Welcome to the So We Speak podcast, where we try to bridge the gap between Sunday and Monday. This is Terry Fakes, and last week Cole interviewed me about my faith journey and how I came into the pastorate, and this week we thought we would turn the tables. So Cole, this week I'd like to kind of explore how you came to Christ, and I know it was very different than my journey. Uh, How would you describe that? Kick us off. Well, I'm really excited to get to take the opportunity to do this. It's been fun interviewing other people. And, you know, like we said last week, you thought it might be a good idea to put our own stories on here and, and do a little interviewing each other. So um, the other thing that's kind of fun about this is obviously being interviewed by your dad uh, is is interesting because you know a lot of my story. But um, it's kind of fun. I think every time, every time uh, we get to share it together, it reminds me of a lot of the great things that God's blessed us with in our, in our lives together. And um, you can see his faithfulness in that. Can I interrupt you there, though? I want to say this. I remember the first time I heard your testimony. It was in front of a, a large group of people. I think you were in high school, maybe in college. But as I recall, I sat there and I thought, I didn't know that. Hey, I didn't know that. Wait a minute. You were doing that? So I'm hoping there aren't any bombshells in this one. Yeah, that's the funny thing is when you get up and you talk about you know the things that God's done in your life and a lot of the time when you do that, you have to talk about things that you did wrong and that kind of thing. And some of those things you had been keeping secret from your parents. So <laughs> it can be kind of a revelatory experience when you do that. Um, but I obviously grew up in a Christian home. And I think one of the things that everybody has to realize is just because you grow up in a Christian home doesn't mean that you're a Christian. And while I would say that it's obviously hugely beneficial to get to grow up in a Christian home, I had good role models, you and mom. Um, You obviously taught me the Bible stories. I knew a lot about God. I'd been to church a lot. But at some point in your life, you got to own your own faith. And I came to the point where I knew that if you were going to be a Christian, you had to actually act like a Christian. There were things that you needed to do beyond just being obedient to your parents. Like you actually had to do what was right, even when it wasn't easy. And as a, you know, 15 or 16 year old, that just really didn't sound very good to me. So what I decided was if you don't, if you're not a Christian, you can pretty much do whatever you want. And that sounded really good to me. And so I thought to myself, okay, well, I'm going to just kind of explore whatever, you know, I want to believe, but really mine was less belief driven and more behavior driven. If I want to do what I want, then as a result, I, I need to believe what I want. Whereas I think, you know, last week we talked about your testimony it was, it was very belief driven. I think mine was probably the opposite. And I wouldn't have admitted it then, but looking back on it, the funny thing is I was really at the point that everybody has to come to where I was making a decision between who I wanted to be God in my life. And really at that point, I wanted to be God in my own life, even if I wouldn't have articulated it that way. So as a you know freshman, sophomore in high school, I, don't, I wouldn't say that I was necessarily opposed to God, but I certainly wasn't living for God. I was outwardly a pretty obedient, at least... You know, I didn't have any major rebellion going on, but inside I was hugely rebellious. And I started doing debate in high school. I started reading different things. And, you know, I realized, hey, it's a pretty good deal not to be a Christian. You can do whatever you want. So I'm going along uh, doing that and moving through high school. And 
my junior year comes along, and I can remember it like it was yesterday. I'm sitting in Mr. Anthony's Bible class my junior year, and one of my good friends taps me on the back and says, Hey, I stole the answers to the Kim 1 and Kim 2 finals. Do you want them? Well, I mean, when you're 17 and you're not worried about moral repercussions, like that's the easiest question in the world to answer. The answer is yes. Chem 2 was my hardest class. Didn't want to study for it. Um, so anyway, it was a 50-question, multiple-choice final, and he gave me a sheet of paper that had every single answer on it and uh, went home, put it on a note card, You know, kind of disguised it, came up with my own code, like John Nash type stuff on this index card. And took it in, did did well on the test, not so well that anybody would notice. And um, then I went when I went home. Actually, I I I think the family must have been going to church or something like that. Uh, but I burned the evidence in our backyard and planned to never think about it again. So fast forward, that was in like the first week of December, second week of December, whenever finals are. Fast forward to Christmas, and this is in 2006, and I'm, I'm asleep in bed like, like a normal night, and I start having this dream. And in the dream, it's like pictures of all these things from my childhood that have a great connotation of Christianity. So pictures from youth group, from going to Canacuck, all that kind of stuff. And I start to wake up and it's going through my head. And then all of a sudden, everything stops. And I'm sitting up in bed. It's like 2.30 in the morning. And there's nothing, no pictures, no noise, no nothing in my head. And in the middle of that, a voice speaks to me and it says, Cole, if you want to be content in life, it is only going to be through me. And that really freaked me out in the moment um, because I really wasn't sure what that was. I mean, I, I really wasn't sure that God actually spoke to people. And I was pretty sure that if he did, he wasn't speaking to me. So I just laid back. I just laid down and went back to sleep. So um, I get up the next morning and I start thinking about it. I'm like, what was that? Like, that was really weird. And I, I started going through things. I was like, you know, I'm not having like a, a crisis of what I'm going to do with my life. I'm not worried about, um, you know, contentment. Like that just wasn't really something on my mind. So um, I thought to myself, maybe this is God. And so what I did was I said, I, I kind of thought about it. I was like, you know, I've never actually tried Christianity 100% given everything to it, surrendered my life. And so I thought to myself, I was like, you know what? I'm going to have to do this at some point. And I think that might've been God. And so I, 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 I got down next to my bed. I got down on my knees and I said, God, if that was you, I was like, I'm going to give you my life 100% for one month. And after a month, I'm going to evaluate. And if it's worth it, I'm going to keep doing it. And if it's not, then I can forever say that I tried it and it wasn't good, it wasn't true, and I'm, I'm not going to mess with it ever again. So I go from there as a you know the new, new believer that I am. I start growing, because at that point, this was really cool. When you grow up in a Christian home, it's almost like what your parents have done for you is they've built you this bonfire, and they've put the logs on there, they've assembled it, they've put the kindling, 
but no human being has the power to spark that fire in the life of their child. But, but once there was a spark, like once that happened, then all the logs begin to catch flame. And so the good thing for me was, even though I hadn't, you know, none of those things had been burning up until that point, they were there. So all that I'd learned about the Bible, everything I'd learned about the Christian life, the Bible stories that I knew, what I knew about God, even though I didn't really know God, all caught fire. And so I began to grow really fast because I, I could just kind of take up where all those materials had left me. So I start praying, start reading my Bible, start thinking about what it means to be Christian, to follow Christ. And I go back to school. About the second or third day of school, I hear that sound that no high schooler ever wants to hear come over to the intercom where the you know secretary or the principal is like, Cole Fakes, please come to the high school office. Cole Fakes, please come to the high school office. So I, I, don't, I honestly, it didn't even occur to me what they wanted me there for. I had no idea what I was about to walk into. So I get, and I go downstairs into the high school office. I sit across from the, the uh, high school principal. And he says to me, hey, we are uncovering a cheating scandal in the Kim 1 and Kim 2 finals. And I want to know everything that you know about it. Well, when you've gotten in trouble quite a bit as a kid, you you begin to have this sixth sense about situations like this. And what And you got in trouble a lot as a kid. I did. Yes. And so I, I knew this. The question isn't, are you going to tell them everything you know? The question is, how much do they already know? And how much are they trying <laughs> to get you to tell them? So I'm sitting there being like, what do you actually know about this? And I and I didn't know that uh, other people involved had talked to him or anything like that. So I was kind of flying blind. And uh, like the new born-again Christian that I was, I decided to lie about everything. <laughs> so it was an all-day affair. I mean, it was, it was pretty brutal. I didn't get lunch. I was questioned. I was passed around from office to office. And by the end of the day, basically they were like, look, we can't prove that you did it. Um, and so we're going to let you go. So I walked out of there just thinking I was so awesome and incredible that I pulled the wool over everybody's eyes. And I went home that night and laid down in bed and I had developed this habit of starting to pray every night before bed. So I lay down, my head hits the pillow and I'm like, Lord, thanks for this day. And then I just stopped. And I was like, I can't do this. I was like, I feel so guilty. Like I feel conviction. And I was like, you know what though? is the conviction really worth it? I was like, I'm not going to, I was like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to change anything. I can just suppress the guilt. I'll be fine. So I go to bed, wake up the next day, go throughout my day. Don't think anything about it. Get home that night, go to bed, head hits the pillow. Lord, thank you for this day. And can't do it. And I felt that conviction and I started praying and I, and I just knew that, that I needed to make the situation right, but I was struggling to figure out what I needed to do about it. And I don't know when I would have memorized this as a kid, um, but I'm sure at either BBS or a Bible study or something, I'd memorized Matthew 16, 24, and that passage where Jesus says, if anybody wants to save his life, he must lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what good is it for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? And in that moment, that verse came to me. And as I'm laying there as a 17-year-old, I'm thinking to myself, man, this is my entire world. Um, all the academic accolades that I've worked for, you know, my reputation, everything like that. I was like, I can't, I was like, I really can't 
give all this up. And then the thought occurred to me, you said you were going to do this for one month and your month is not over yet. So I told God, I said, okay, I told you I'd give you one month and uh, my month is not over. So I'm going to do what I know I should do and I'm going to trust you. And then I'll just figure this in in my evaluation at the end of the month. So I get up out of bed. I go into you guys' room, tell you guys, and wake up the next morning. I go back to the school, and I know that I need to turn myself in and confess to what I did. But I'm sitting there before we go in there, and that verse is just playing over and over and over and over again in my head. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will find it. And it doesn't gain you anything to if you gain everything you want, but you forfeit your soul in the process. So I go into the principal's office. I confess. They suspend me for two days, which still irks me a little bit because, I mean, they suspended me one day for cheating, one day for lying. And I was like, really? One day for lying? I mean, I did turn myself in. Like if it was just left up to them, I mean, they wouldn't have figured out the truth. But uh, the (laughs) thing that was interesting was they suspended me on a Thursday morning and that counted for my first day. And so I had Thursday and Friday and then Saturday, Sunday, I had a a four-day weekend. And I remember getting home and just knowing deep down inside that something was going on. And I don't, you may, you might correct me on this. I don't think I even got punished for that. Like for this whole ordeal, I don't think I got punished because part, I think part of it is I think you guys knew something deeper was going on. That's true. You did not get punished for that. And, and that's kind of you weird. You brought that to us. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how many kids out there get suspended from high school and don't get punished, but, and it's certain that certainly was not the pattern in our family. But I just think there was something so much deeper going on that I didn't need to be punished because God was doing that deep work in my own heart. And uh, so I kept following him after that. And the crazy thing is um, I never reevaluated my month after that. And I never went back to it. I never thought, was this worth it? I think God was so evident. He provided so obviously that... um, I never stopped following him. And so if anything, I mean, I, I guess I'm still on my month. I'm, it's been 12 years now, and uh, I could go back and evaluate at some point. But I'll tell you in hindsight two things that were really interesting about the way that that happened. First, in hindsight, at the time I would not have said this, but in hindsight it's so interesting that God chose to test my faith in the month that I was evaluating my faith. Mm, and yes. you might think that that would occur the opposite way that if you know that if God really wanted me to continue in the faith he would have given me like the best month ever and then I would have looked back on it and it was really awesome and you know God is so awesome but instead that was probably one of the worst months of my life and it makes you think about what's really at work in conversion so when people come to God what actually happens to them and part of it is Um, when people come to Christ, they're not responding to a great ad campaign. Now, that may be something that gets you in the door. That may be something that helps you. But when you actually come to Christ, it's more than just having a good time. It's more than just um, enjoying your life. It's more than just a good ad campaign. It's something deep going on in your soul, something that's actually going on in your heart that's taking place. And for me, it's so interesting that he orchestrated that, even in my own sin, so that my first month of following him would be characterized not by earthly success or happiness, but by trusting him at a level that I never had before. 
The second thing that's kind of interesting is in the aftermath of that, I, um, you know, my reputation was built basically on being smart and being cool. And both right. of those were taken away pretty quickly after that happened. So on the smart thing, it's pretty obvious. It's like, well, you used to be the smart guy, but now we know you cheated. So nobody thinks that you're the smart guy anymore. And so I feel like I lost a piece of identity in that. But the second thing was I had lied to all my friends about it. So then when the truth comes out, they all felt hurt or betrayed or whatever because I hadn't told them the truth. And so I, f- I quickly found myself in a situation where I felt like I didn't have my same old friends and I didn't have my same old reputation. And the beautiful thing about that, again, I would not have said this in the moment, but in hindsight is God orchestrated this in just the way that I was able to rebuild my identity and my relationships in him in light of what he was doing rather than in light of what I had been doing before that. And so instead of having the identity of being smart or being cool or whatever, I was forced to embrace an identity of grace, of being forgiven, of working from something that God had been with you through. I mean, all those things are things I probably would not have done on my own that I'm really glad in hindsight God gave me the opportunity to do. Well, let me break in there for just a second because you make two really good points. And uh, the first point is I also think it's amazing that during your free trial period, (laughs) your one-month trial, that it was not a delightful experience. I think that does speak a lot to conversion is that uh, God didn't say, oh, sure, I'll make sure you have a very pleasant month and maybe you'll stick with me one more instead he gave you the worst month of your life to that point. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, I think that's a very astute point that you make, that you went back to school and your identity of being cool and being smart had been destroyed by the decision that you had made. And so you had the opportunity And I'm sure it didn't feel like an opportunity. It probably felt like a curse at the time to rebuild your identity on something else. How did that work out for you as you finished high school and you went on into college? So I think the thing that sometimes we underestimate about conversion is everyone has to go through that process if you're going to grow. So like I, I think about this in terms of the parable of the sower a lot, especially if you're in ministry and you're trying to do discipleship. You think about this a lot. You watch somebody come to faith, whether it's kind of a radical conversion, whether it's um, somebody where it just finally clicks. Like It doesn't really matter how it happens. But in light of the fact that it has happened, the first thing that needs to change is there has to be this sense that you are a new person, but you feel like an old, you feel like the same old person. So it's always kind of an awkward encounter when if you pray with somebody who accepts Christ. So you pray and they pray after you or kind of what, however you're doing it. And then you open your eyes and you just look at each other and you're like, nothing's different. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just that there's kind of that right. understood of like, so what now? <laughs> yeah. Because that's the way that conversion works is you are a new person. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, like if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. You've been created all new over again but you're still on this same trajectory. You're still on the same path of where you were before. And so something has to change. And and that's really the work of the Holy Spirit is the Spirit begins to change your desires. 
He begins to change your community. He begins to change your friendships. He begins to change your self-image. And uh, some of that is really conscious and some of it isn't. And I would say that uh, in the more radical conversions that you see, a lot of times the reasons they're so radical is not just the circumstances that, that were occurring when it happened, but the result, the, the immediacy of the change that takes place directly after. And so I, I would say, you know, in mine, it was probably more gradual, but the Lord at least set it up for a pretty quick change as far as the way I saw myself. And that was really gracious in hindsight. So, you know, whether that was high school friendships, whether that was um, my different relationships that I'd built at, at school or at church or whatever, when I began to take my faith seriously, it was out of a place where I felt like I really am a new person. I was actually leaving something behind. Yes, that's a really good point you make. And here's something I think... Uh that'll resonate with everyone listening to us is when you have a persona that you have created, in your case, the smart kid and the cool kid, it seems like there's a lot of pressure to keep that up. And in your case, that was all taken away from you, so to speak, mm-hmm. over a weekend. Did you feel as you moved on, I assume you felt some uh, shame or depression or whatever, but did you feel like a load had been lifted that you no longer had to uh, maintain that persona? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I feel like there probably were moments that was true. That definitely was true when I got to college. So when I got to college and joined a fraternity, the, I definitely felt the impact of not having to put on a front for everybody else. Like I felt like I could actually be who I really was. I didn't have as much pressure to perform. I didn't have as much pressure to fit in. I didn't have as much, um, you know, I, I didn't feel like I had to make all the older members like me to feel good about myself because I had had enough time at that point, enough growth to realize that um, I really just needed to please the Lord and, and that he was pleased with me. So I felt like once I got into college, there definitely was a benefit in not feeling like you have to wear a mask. And I'll tell you, one of the best things that ever happened to me in college was, so if I had been growing at that point, I would say from the time I was a junior in high school when I became a Christian to the time I was halfway through my freshman year in college, so about two years time, I was really just growing and learning how to do spiritual discipline. So I was learning to read my Bible. I was learning to pray. I was learning to... Um, give, serve, all those kinds of things. When I was a freshman in college, I had these guys in a campus ministry sit me down and draw this spectrum. So like a line that went from one side of the page to the other, and they said, um, right here is conversion. This is when you become a Christian on the left. And then over here on the right is a disciple maker. And they said, where are you on this line? And, you know, being the kid that grew up in a Christian home, you know, I don't, I don't want to be, you know, I knew what the wrong answer was, um, putting down either pole, but, uh, I, I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to seem less mature than maybe they thought I was. So I just put a mark right in the middle, <laughs> even though I, I really didn't have any concept for what disciple making was at that point. And they said, well, did you know that as a Christian, your, your charge, like the vision for your life, 
is that you would be a disciple maker. And so they read me the Great Commission and they said, we, we want to help you become a disciple maker. And from that moment, I realized that that was my next step, was that I needed to understand what it meant to actually help other people grow in their faith. And here's the funny thing is, you think when you're a young believer that you can't help anybody grow in your faith because you haven't really grown in your faith. And that's true to an extent. Like there's reasons why you don't have like people that have been believers for two months teaching at seminaries and, you know, Sunday school classes and all of that. There, there is a level of maturity that needs to take place for certain things. But actually, one of the best ways that you can grow is to begin to do life-on-life ministry and discipleship with other people who are growing as well. And so most of my college years, I would say, um, my central focus was figuring out what it means to do one-on-one discipleship or one-on-small-group discipleship with other guys, both in the fraternity and on a college campus. You know, that's a, that's a great story that could apply to any believer. I mean, in the sense that that is the ideal trajectory for believers. And yet you also then felt a call into ministry, which is not, you know, not every believer feels that call. What, what was special about that and when did that happen? So, yes, for my first two to three years in college, I was doing ministry, and I would have told you I was doing ministry because I believed at that point that you know doing ministry was fulfilling the Great Commission, was uh, helping other people to grow, sharing your faith, that kind of thing. I started teaching a Bible study when I was, let's see, I started teaching a Bible study when I was a pledge, which would have been the second semester of my freshman year into my early into my sophomore year. And uh, you know what's funny? I started teaching this Bible study, and, we, and I taught through the book of Matthew. It took me two years, and it was terrible. It was horrible. Like, I can't believe guys actually came to this thing. I looked at my notes a couple years ago for it, and I was like, I just, I just cannot believe this. But I was just I was trying to make an impact. I think the teaching was probably the least impactful part of that Bible study, learning to pray for each other, learning to meet and talk about life, learning to read the text together was really important. Um, but I was doing ministry at that point, and I was working at Canacuck in the summers. And the summer between my junior and senior year, when I was working at camp, I, I had a call to ministry. And like my conversion, this was something that I, I never expected, um, didn't plan for it, wasn't really thinking about going into ministry. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, but I don't think being a pastor was high on my list. I had watched you be a pastor for, I guess, about two years at that point, year and a half, two years at that point. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of great things about being a pastor, but when you're a pastor's kid or when somebody that you love is a pastor, you don't usually have that great a picture of being a pastor. Once you see the inside of it, you kind of are sober to the realities of what ministry is, is really like. And you understand that the people that do it, do it because they're called. They don't do it because they just love every moment of it. So um, I was working at camp, and I was at K1 in the party barn, which is this big barn with a swing in the middle. And so I'm throwing kids off of this barn swing and just standing up there having a blast. And all of a sudden, it was like everything in the party barn just kind of faded away. It was almost like I was staring at something right in front of my face. 
and everything else was out of focus, but I wasn't, and I wasn't controlling this. And then as that was happening, I felt this massive weight, this presence on my body, like I was going to be just crushed into the ground. And in that moment, there was a voice exactly like it happened um, a few years before that, when I had come to Christ, there was this voice and it said, mouthpiece, mouthpiece. And then all of a sudden I just snapped out of it. And I tell you what, after that, I, I felt completely exhausted, like overwhelmed and exhausted. So I call my co up there. He comes up there. I go down and I lay down on the ground and fall asleep. And I was asleep for like three hours. So I wake up, I go looking for my cabin and everything, and I was praying that night and the next morning just asking God, what was that? Like, what in the world just happened? And the next morning as I was praying, I felt God just say, hey, I want three things from you. First, I want you to give me my, I want you to give me your whole life in ministry. Um, And at that point, I don't know why, but I was like, okay, no big deal. 100% I'll give you my life in ministry. Secondly, he said, I want you to read the prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel. And I want you to read them not as like a study of ancient Israel, not as just part of the Bible, but I want you to read them to see what it looks like when someone is given the word of God to share with a group of people who don't want to hear it. And so it probably took me six months after that, but I worked through and read through the prophets. And then the third thing he said was, there are some areas in your life, there's some sin areas in, there, in your life that I'm about to take away immediately. So obviously, I, I at that point, I was working on putting sin to death. I had good accountability in my life and everything. And there were a couple of things that I had struggled with that God just immediately removed. Removed the desire, removed the um, ability, just completely removed. And uh, what's interesting is, as I was studying Later on, as I was reading through the prophets and studying them, I come to find out that the word for prophet in Hebrew literally means mouthpiece. And that was really interesting to me that in my call to ministry, God said, I want you to be in ministry. I want you to read these prophets. And then the word that he used to kind of cast the vision for that was mouthpiece. And like I said, I think what he was calling me to wasn't necessarily the, the the office of Old Testament prophet. I mean, I just don't think that's what he was saying. I think he was saying, hey, do you see what they're doing with the Word of God? Do you see how they're speaking it to people? Do you see how they're taking it before people? Do you see how they're heralding what God has given them? That's what it means to be my mouthpiece. And um, I think that's been so interesting to see that unfold, and I have no doubt that it will you know, even more into the future. But it's been so interesting to see that unfold in my own life and my own ministry is that that's something that I need to be pursuing. That's something that I need to keep in mind, that I've been called to speak the word of the Lord, even when it's inconvenient, even when um, it's it's not a situation where you're seeing a lot of fruit. You know, when Paul says to Timothy, preach it in season and out of season, um, you need to be a mouthpiece for the Lord. So uh, after that, I... Went back to OSU, um, took over a ministry there, a worship ministry there right after that. So the timing was really interesting on that. Um, and then when I got done with college, I really wasn't sure what I was going to do. I thought I was going to go to Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. 
and so again, I was at camp and got a call, I think from, um, I think you called and talked to me about it and then got a call from some people at crossings that were like, Hey, do, would you like to come do a residency? And I just knew that that's what God wanted me to do. So I said no to covenant and came to crossings, began working there, doing college ministry, started getting my MD at OC and uh, for the next six years, just kind of follow the Lord's leading there in ministry. Yeah, I remember that. I remember two things about that. Uh, the first one being, by the way, this idea of when God had spoken to you, I mean, in, in a sense. And I remembered in my reading that in the Hebrew, when it talks about the word of the Lord, the oracle of the Lord, that the word for that, Massah, means burden. The burden of the Lord came upon me. And that's when I first realized that God had placed, I know this sounds like religious language, but literally a burden on you. But secondly, I realized uh, that that was not my preference. I remember trying to talk you out of working at a church Mm -hmm. or going into ministry and going into business first thinking, look, let's go ahead and do something where you can fulfill some of the potential because you had great potential, you know, national merit scholar and a lot of opportunities. And uh, I think your faith was probably stronger than mine at that point. I thought, well, then if you still feel like you want to go into ministry, do that later. But I remember the day that I realized, no, God has placed a burden on your life and I need to be okay with that. And that you had literally been called to ministry. Mm -hmm. And you know, that Cole, that has shaped my view of ministry is that it is indeed a calling. I know we use that word in a you know, in a lot of different ways, but I think your calling was literally a burden that God put on you. And I don't know what shape it will take in the future, but I don't think it's something you can ignore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the interesting thing, especially when you do college ministry. You know, you're talking to people all the time about what they feel called to do. You're talking to people that, you know, think they might want to go into ministry. You're talking to people who want to be pastors, and uh, you, you have to develop in that situation a sense of what it means to be called. And, uh, you know, it's hard, you know, when they say, well, how did you know you were called? I'm like, well, I wouldn't have picked it this way. I wouldn't have planned it this way. It actually wasn't really even in my theology at this point to say it this way, but I had this sense that God had spoken to me and called me to ministry, but that's not how most calls to ministry actually happen. You know, most of them are a little bit more subtle than that, and so you develop this this kind of theology of calling that involves your own passions, it involves your skills, it involves the uh, recognition from other people that you're gifted and skilled and passionate for ministry. Um, You look at growth, you look at opportunity, I mean, there's all these things that go with it. And, you know, people use the phrase, if you can see yourself doing anything but ministry, then, then do it, don't do ministry. And I kind of love and hate that phrase. I I love it in the sense that that really is true. Uh, Once you get into ministry, you realize why people say that phrase and why it's helpful. But sometimes I hate that phrase because I think developing your calling, understand what God's leading you to is gradual. And I think that phrase does two things. I think at some points it squelches somebody who's not very far along in that process unnecessarily. So I think it puts an obstacle in front of somebody saying like, unless you're here, you really don't have any business being in ministry. And I don't think that's necessarily true. The other thing is I think it demeans 
other forms of calling. So I don't think that everybody is called to ministry for their entire life. I think that you can be called to a season of, of vocational ministry. Um, I think that you can be a missionary. I think you can be all kinds of things in the church. I mean, I just think that sometimes those things change. It's, it's not a monolithic call for your entire life in every case. And how bad do you feel if you got into ministry and they said, if you can see yourself doing anything but ministry, do it. And you're like, no, I can't. And then five years in, you feel like God is calling you to do something else. You can't feel good in that moment because you feel like you've abandoned you know, your call. You were so sold out and now you're not. And things change. Um, you know, God may have you there for a season, then may, maybe taking you somewhere else. But there is really this sense of there has to be a sense that you really can't do anything else right now than what God has laid before you. And sometimes, you know, what's interesting too is, you know, you give counsel to people. They're applying for something. They're like, am I called to ministry? You're like, yeah, I think you're called. You should apply to this. They apply to it. You write them a great rec letter, and then they don't get it. And then you have the conversation, well, am I called? And in that sense, I always want to respond with, yeah, I think in that moment you were called to apply. (laughs) Um, But I don't think that you, apparently in hindsight, I don't think you necessarily were called to that job. And the call to ministry exists outside of a, a specific job. But jobs are, are nice because they recognize, they acknowledge uh, the calling that you do have. I mean, you have to be called by someone, God primarily, and then a church, a pastor who sees uh, something in you to put, put you on their staff or a congregation of people who want you to be their pastor. So both of those things need to be true in vocational ministry, but those two things uh-huh. are not the exact same thing. Right. You know, in my experience, and again, this is an experiential comment. I'm not making a theological statement here, but my experience in business was that I would move from opportunity to opportunity. And it seemed like it was about every two years. And I would go where I was needed and I would do what needed to be done. I would Mm. turn an organization around or I would go in and rebuild something. And I liked that idea. And when I came to ministry, my calling was looked more like that. It looked like an opportunity for which I had been groomed. I mean, mm-hmm. looking back, you could see literally God had groomed me to do this. And I felt like, well, I can choose not to do it, but I will never be comfortable not doing what God has placed before me. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, sometimes I talk to young people who say, I've been called to youth ministry or I've been called to college ministry. And I think that's true for a season, but not necessarily for a life. I kind of tend to think of God calling us to different assignments Mm -hmm. through our life. I meet elderly people who have been uh, gentlemen here uh, this week, Stuart Briscoe, who obviously built a large church and yet is still serving, but not in the same capacity. He's doing something that you can only do now when you're 88 years old, as opposed to something he could do when he was 48 years old. And it seems to me God sometimes calls us into assignments. And uh, to me, that's been a little better way of thinking about it. What do you think about that? I think it's so cool when you begin to talk about this. A lot of it, obviously, you can only see in the rearview mirror, but Something that's come up the last few episodes that we've been talking about this is it it just becomes so evident that God doesn't waste things that he brings you through. So whether that's your current station in life, whether that's an experience, whether that's 
something that you have going on, whether it's a health thing or something like that, God does not waste those things. He is creating something in you that it's going to take a long time to see what he's doing, but it's meaningful. It's intentional. Um, whether that was, you know, a couple weeks ago, we were talking about how you were prepared to become a teacher. Uh, for me, I think when I look back, I see all the experiences I got to have before I was a Christian, when I was a Christian, that God has kind of looped back around and um, he's created you to be the perfect person to be in your place and your time and in your community to do what he wants you to do there. I mean, the, the staggering thought to me about all of that is, you know, if you believe that God has equipped you and you believe that God has designed you and he, you believe that he orchestrates things, then you have to say that God sees you as the best person, the most equipped person to do the things that he has laid before you. And, and that's kind of staggering when you think about it. Like God could have put Tim Keller in your position, but he didn't. He put right. you there, which means that right. in some way, you know, in the mind of God, you are the more adequate person to be there or else he wouldn't have you there. And you don't want to become a, a, a fatalist and say, well, I guess I don't even have to try or anything like that. Like that should be motivation to take every opportunity that you have to do what God has set before you because he's going to use your past. He's going to use your disposition. He's going to use every characteristic he gave you to accomplish his will in your life, to, to bring himself glory in the situations he's placed you in. And it's cool to sit back and think about that. Sometimes it doesn't make things better in the present. Um, sometimes that's not the greatest motivator, but when you look back, it does make you very thankful about how God has brought things about. Well, and you know, something else that I think it does is if uh, you mentioned Tim Keller and let me just use him as an example, uh, you could as a teacher go, well, I'm here, I am teaching, but boy, I'm no Tim Keller. And I guess God won't use me in that way. I've really found this way of looking at God has placed you exactly where he wants you really does away with envy. Mm-hmm. It You no longer feel like you need to compare yourself to someone else and go, well, I guess I'm not really a great servant of God because I'm not Billy Graham or I'm not, you know, fill in the blank. But if you think about it as God has uniquely gifted and groomed me to be here in this place at this time, you can really thrive without the, I mean, honestly, it's almost like an anchor, you know, a boat anchor tied to you when you envy other people. You're constantly trying to be more than you are. Mm -hmm. I, I personally have just found that to be very comforting because you no longer need to envy anyone else. Yeah, that's really true. And especially when you think about it, you know, envy of other people or, you know, God, I wish you would have made me differently for this, or I wish you would have brought me through different experiences. I mean, in some ways is criticizing the things that God apparently saw fit to do in your life to bring you to the place where you are. And that's not to discount how horrible some of the things that happen are. I mean, if we could do it over again, that doesn't mean we would do everything exactly the same. But it does mean that when you find yourself in a situation where um, you're just wondering, God, have you called me here? Are you with me here? There's a looking back at our story is a tremendous confidence that God really is going to bring about the promises that he's given us. You know, when I look back, one of the things I think is so important about testimonies, and I'll I'll, I'll end with this, is if you look at the Bible, when, when difficult things happen, especially in Paul's letters, Paul barely ever says, hey, this is going to get better in the end. In fact, I, I really can't think of a single place 
where he says that. I mean, Romans 8, 28 says he's going to work out all things, but but I can't think of a place where Paul counsels an individual person that says, hey, this is all going to work out well in the end. Now, what Paul typically does is he does the exact opposite. Instead of looking forward to reassure you in a tough time, he looks backwards. And he says, look, if God has brought you this far, if he called you when you were rebelling against him, if he uh, drew you to himself when you wanted nothing to do with him, then how do you think that he's not going to continue to do that in this present moment? Right. You know, that's a great point that you make is instead of looking forward with the apprehension that that typically brings, look backward with the confidence and the faith that that typically brings. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, your story is encouraging, and it, it's encouraging whether somebody's in ministry or not in ministry. I mean, I read out of that the the idea of owning your own faith. You know, my good friend Mike Fackler, uh, when he was a middle school pastor, said, you know, his main goal was to get kids to own their own faith, not their parents'. And I think your story is really amazing about how God brought you to own your own faith. And then as you walk that out, that's really no different for someone who's called to be a pastor than any other believer. And I think that's very encouraging uh, that your life, you know, your life story is something that everyone can identify with. But as we uh, kind of end this up, and kind of your story uh, of your life, and I'll just say to you, there was nothing there that I hadn't heard before. So thank you very well, much yeah, for not surprising me. Good. Yeah, I appreciate that very much. Give us a quick glimpse, because you have just recently taken a position at Redeemer Fellowship in Kansas City, and you're kind of uh, finishing your dissertation. You're kind of moving on, uh, on I, in my view, on the path that God has sort of laid out for you. Uh, what do you see next in your future? I mean, just tell us about your vision of your future. Yeah, so I would say that uh, this is this really is a new season, um, kind of bringing one season to a close, seamlessly starting something new. Um, yeah, so I've taken the last six months to write the dissertation, to turn it in, and I'm really close to getting to turn that in. Within the next month, uh, turning in the draft and then beginning the editing process and all of the things that you have to go through to, to, to get to the point where you can defend your dissertation. Um, and then starting the new job is just a fun new chapter. Obviously, moving to Kansas City has been uh, crazy. It's been fun. It's been sad. Uh, but I'm really excited for the role at this, at this new church. I'm getting to learn a lot, getting to be on an incredible staff, uh, getting, getting to be able to uh, just be mentored and learn from different people. And so, yeah, this is a really exciting season. Lots of new things. I'm excited to talk more about that on future podcasts and and things that I get to learn and experience. Well, I tell you, from my perspective, looking back, you know, having uh, been involved with these folks for five or six years and wondering about what's next, it's so clear looking in the rearview mirror that God has groomed you for this. And the one thing I would encourage everybody listening is that doesn't happen to just some believers. It happens to all believers. And whether you're in a desert time or you're in a high growth time, God really is charting out your path in front of you. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.